Hi listeners, it's Carter, here to tell you about an incredible event celebrating the launch of ParCast's first book, Cults. On July 13th, crime junkies Ashley Flowers and ParCast founder Max Cutler are coming together for a night of true crime to remember. And you can be part of it virtually on Spotify Live or in person. The evening will take place in Los Angeles and feature discussions about the book, a live Q&A, and so much more. All ticket sales up to $125,000 will be matched by Max Cutler and donated to Season of Justice, a nonprofit founded by Ashley Flowers that provides financial resources to help solve cold cases and support families impacted by unsolved violent crimes. It's a wonderful cause and an evening perfect for any true crime fan. But time is running out. Register for your spot today at parcast.com slash cults. All attendees will receive a special signed copy of Parcast's new book, Cults. So don't wait. Sign up at parcast.com slash cults. Hi, listeners. For the next two weeks, we've got something special planned, a four-part crossover between our show's Unexplained Mysteries and Conspiracy Theories. We're teaming up to cover the grandfather of all alien conspiracy theories, one of the most famous UFO events in world history, which occurred 75 years ago this week. We're talking about Roswell. Cruising through the New Mexico desert, you might feel tempted to stop over in the quaint little town, an unassuming community that boasts one of the world's largest mozzarella plants, the International UFO Museum and Research Center, and the interplanetary art exhibit known as the Roswell UFO Spacewalk. Today, Roswell, New Mexico is synonymous with conspiracy theories and government cover-ups all because the military seized an unidentified object that crashed in the area in 1947. Ever since, the town has occupied a central position in American pop culture and fringe supernatural speculation. It's redefined our understanding of federal institutions and our perceptions of how trustworthy they are. It kick-started nearly five decades worth of clandestine investigations and it may be the site of one of our planet's first visits from extraterrestrial beings. That is, assuming you believe the accounts about the Roswell crash. But after listening to this four-part series, we think you might. Welcome to Roswell The Legacy, a four-episode podcast special presented by Unexplained Mysteries and Conspiracy Theories. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. Normally, on Tuesdays and Thursdays, Molly and I co-host Unexplained Mysteries. And I'm your host, Carter. On Monday and Wednesdays, Molly and I co-host Conspiracy Theories. For the next two weeks, all three of us are teaming up to bring you this special crossover on the Roswell UFO incident. It happened 75 years ago this week and kick-started decades of speculation about extraterrestrial life. Some reports suggest that the U.S. military may have used the UFO wreckage to develop new technology or to perform illicit autopsies. 
Or, most concerning of all, Roswell may have led to a decades-long global misinformation campaign. For the next four episodes, we're diving deep into all the ways the infamous event changed American culture. For many people, the Roswell crash was the first indication that aliens existed, and the aftermath suggests the U.S. government is keeping that information under wraps. Today, we're covering the official story, the details both ufologists and skeptics agree on. We'll meet the small-town rancher who discovered the wreckage and handed it over to the Roswell Army Airfield in 1947. Then we'll explore the base's secret mission to silence the witnesses. Next time, we'll cover the government's official stance and how their story may be one giant lie. We'll explore the U.S. government's history of cover-ups and the reasons you can't always trust what you hear, especially when it comes to alien encounters. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. From your morning podcast to your afternoon playlist, State Farm knows you personalize your entire day. And that's why State Farm helps you personalize your insurance with the State Farm Personal Price Plan. It offers coverage options that help protect what you care about most at an affordable price just for you. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices vary by state. Options selected by customer. Availability and eligibility may vary. The mid-1940s were a stressful time for Americans. World War II had changed the global power balance. The atomic age had begun, and perhaps most unnerving of all, aliens from outer space seemed to be particularly interested in the United States. Researchers can't agree on exactly how many inexplicable objects were spotted during the UFO wave of 1947. But estimates suggest there were anywhere from 16 to 800 sightings in the U.S. that year alone. Over the course of an especially active period, in June and early July of 1947, unidentified flying objects were sighted in Emmett, Idaho, Norfolk, Virginia, Shreveport, Louisiana, Bozeman, Montana, and Oldwine, Iowa. And that's just to name a few. Reportedly, a UFO crashed in New Mexico just over one month before the Roswell incident. It went down in Nogal Canyon, about 100 miles west of the more famous crash site. But this account was overshadowed by another sighting one month later. On June 24th, a civilian pilot named Kenneth Arnold was flying over Mount Rainier, Washington. He'd heard another airplane had crashed in the area and was hoping to find it. There was a $5,000 reward if he did. Arnold's gaze was focused on the ground when a bright flash lit up the entire sky. It was 3 p.m. on a clear, sunny day, and the glare was still visible. At first, Arnold figured the glint was sunlight reflecting off another plane's wings. In fact, he was worried he'd nearly collided with another craft, since the beam seemed to emanate right near his wing. When a second flicker caught his attention a few moments later, he finally identified the light source. And it didn't look anything like an airplane. Instead, it was nine flying objects arranged diagonally in formation. 
They didn't have discernible tails or jet streams, and they were moving extremely fast. When Arnold checked his own velocity and compared it to the flying objects, he calculated they were flying at approximately 1,700 miles per hour. For context, that's more than twice the speed of sound, a velocity no airplane on Earth reached until six and a half years after this. Not only were these objects flying at mind-boggling speeds, they seemed to be moving differently than any other plane could. When Arnold spoke about the incident to a reporter, he compared the ship's movement to a saucer skipping over water. To be clear, he never said the vessels were saucer-shaped. In fact, he said they looked more like boomerangs. But the reporter's article described them as, quote, saucer-like objects. And as other outlets picked up the story, they continued to misinterpret or misquote the comparison. And the International News Service identified the ships as flying saucers, which is exactly how the iconic phrase was born. But Arnold's headline-grabbing UFO sighting was about to be overshadowed by the granddaddy of all extraterrestrial events, the Roswell crash itself. We know very little about how the Roswell craft fell to Earth. We also don't know exactly when it happened. But many ufologists believe the crash occurred on the night of July 3, 1947, when a vicious thunderstorm raged in New Mexico. That evening, multiple ranchers heard claps of thunder rumble through the sky, and they were growing more severe with each passing minute. Around the height of the storm, the air resounded with a bone-rattling boom. Nobody could identify it. It was too loud to be thunder. But perhaps it was the sound of something crashing down to our world. That same night, a local man named Jim Ragsdale and his girlfriend, Trudy Truelove, were out camping, 30 to 40 miles outside of Roswell. Suddenly, around 11.30 p.m., a brilliant bluish-gray light zoomed across the sky. It was bright and loud enough to interrupt the couple. They looked up just in time to see the light plummet to the ground roughly a mile from their campsite. Ragsdale and Trulove's curiosity got the best of them. They ditched camp and drove after the strange object. When a ridge prevented their jeep from getting any further, they grabbed some flashlights and walked through the area, only to find a large unidentified object had smashed into the side of a cliff. By now, it was dark and late. The couple couldn't make out many details about the downed object. They resolved to explore the area after sunrise, so they drove back to their campsite and waited for dawn. The next morning, Ragsdale noticed some odd debris by the crash site. It looked like metal, but it could crumple up in his hands almost like aluminum foil. But unlike aluminum foil, it sprung right back into its original shape when Ragsdale let go. It didn't even show a crease where it had been bent. Ragsdale and Trulove continued following the trail of wreckage up to a massive downed craft. And there, they found something even more disturbing. Corpses. They were about four or five feet tall, and something about them triggered an intense impulse in both Ragsdale and Trulove. They needed to get away, and fast. Yet, Ragsdale and Trulove somehow resisted the urge to run. 
In fact, the couple was still lingering near the wreck when some unexpected newcomers arrived, army soldiers. In a wild rush, six to eight army trucks descended on the site, along with a civilian Ford pickup. Ragsdale and Trulove crouched in some tall grass, staying out of sight as they watched the soldiers collect everything from the crash. Eventually, the pair crept away, unsure of what they'd just witnessed. Ragsdale tried to rationalize the incident, thinking they must have stumbled upon some military exercise. In their minds, there was no way they'd just discovered a downed spacecraft or alien bodies. He and True Love both kept quiet about what they'd seen. They tried to live as though they believed their own rational explanation, but they couldn't stick to that narrative for long, in part because they weren't the only eyewitnesses. After the thunderstorm, another Roswell resident discovered wreckage closely resembling what Ragsdale and True Love had seen. But unlike the couple, this man didn't keep the experience quiet. He told everyone what he'd found. And by the time the army caught wind of his discovery, the story was too big to contain. Coming up, a small-town farmer sets the Roswell legacy in motion. Hi, listeners. It's Carter with some truly exciting news. To commemorate the launch of Colts, ParCast's first book, Crime Junkies Ashley Flowers and ParCast founder Max Cutler are coming together on July 13th for an in-person and virtual experience you do not want to miss. The evening will take place in Los Angeles and feature a live Q&A about the book, an exclusive meet and greet, and a discussion on all things true crime. All ticket sales up to $125,000 will be matched by Max Cutler and donated to Season of Justice, a nonprofit founded by Ashley that provides funding to law enforcement agencies and families to help solve cold cases. It's an amazing organization near and dear to both Ashley and Max, and another great reason to enjoy this wonderful night. And it's just days away, so visit parcast.com slash cults to register today. You can also catch the event virtually on Spotify Live if you are unable to join us in person. All attendees will get a signed copy of the book and a night they'll never forget. July 13th is fast approaching, so be sure to join Ashley Flowers and Max Cutler for a very special evening celebrating the release of ParCast's new book, Cults, all for an incredible cause. Register today at ParCast.com slash cults. Now back to the story. Rancher Mac Brazel lived in a remote rural neighborhood 75 miles from Roswell. He worked at a property known as J.B. Foster Ranch that sat in the rural stretch between towns. In the late 1940s, most residents in this part of New Mexico didn't have electricity. In fact, they didn't get phone service until nearly 40 years later. And Brazel didn't own a radio so he was likely unaware of the UFO fervor sweeping the United States. Instead, the summer of 1947 must have felt like any other. 
One day, shortly after the July 3rd thunderstorm, he was going about his duties on the ranch with the help of his neighbor's seven-year-old son. And that's when they spotted something bizarre strewn about the pasture. Brazel didn't know what he was looking at exactly. At first, he may have believed it was a crashed weather balloon. Local agencies often flew balloons over Foster Ranch, and they regularly went down on the property. And on more than one occasion, Brazel had stumbled across them and cleaned up the mess. So he was very familiar with what crashed weather balloons looked like. He knew they were typically made of rubber or latex. They weren't very big, maybe 20 feet long at most. But the material was designed to stretch, so a burst balloon could cover a lot of ground. And they often contained mechanical instruments to record data about the atmosphere. But when Brazel took a closer look at the debris in the pasture, he realized he didn't recognize this material at all. The fields were covered with a shiny metallic substance, but also these odd rubbery sheets. There was debris that resembled wooden sticks and strips of tape with an odd purple, almost flowery print on them. It was everywhere, scattered across 200 yards of ranch land. For context, that's just over one-tenth of a mile. No piece of debris seemed to be larger than a basketball, suggesting something must have been torn to shreds before the materials rained down on the property because it also didn't leave any kind of crater. At the time, Brazel didn't have time to inspect the debris. But a few days later, when he returned to the site, Brazel did what any curious bystander might do. He collected the wreckage. Then he conducted his own tests to determine what it was. He found that the rubbery material was lightweight and very flexible. But it was strong practically indestructible. He found the scrap was impossible to burn, crush, or tear. But it was the metallic material that really caught Brazel's attention. He picked up the crushed metal and examined it closely. And before his eyes, it unfolded itself, unwrapping into a thin, flat sheet, almost like it remembered its earlier shape. Which is consistent with what Jim Ragsdale reported. When he visited the ship's crash site after the storm, he also found metal that could crush or warp, only to return to its original shape. This detail, as well as the timing of Ragsdale's report and Brazel's discovery, led some investigators to believe the debris was from the same crash. The ship must have rained the wreckage down on Foster Ranch before plummeting near Ragsdale's campsite. Brazel didn't know what to do about the mystery debris. He sought a second opinion, then a third, fourth, and fifth. When neither his wife, son, nor daughter could identify it, he turned to his friends and neighbors. Nearly everyone he consulted had seen a crashed weather balloon before, and they all agreed this wasn't it. Before long, news of the Brazel's strange debris became an open secret around Roswell. It seemed everyone knew something strange had gone down over Foster Ranch. The rancher still didn't have a satisfying answer when he drove into Roswell. And when he got to town, he learned everyone was also talking about Kenneth Arnold's sighting, 
which had happened just two weeks prior. Perhaps this encouraged Brazel that others would take his discovery seriously. It's unclear if he suspected the scrap was extraterrestrial, but he knew it had to have some kind of strange origin. And Arnold's story may have made all the pieces click into place. So, a few days later, while in town to sell wool, he headed to the police station with the debris in tow to notify the one person he felt could help, Sheriff George Wilcox. As soon as Brazel showed Wilcox the debris, the sheriff was baffled. This was clearly above his pay grade. So he notified a contact at the local military base, the Roswell Army Airfield, or RAAF. The RAAF responded immediately, almost like they knew there was something special about this debris. And reports suggest they were prepared to ensure nobody else learned the truth. Coming up, the Army investigates and covers up the Roswell crash. Now, back to the story. By July 1947, Major Jesse Antoine Marcel had been stationed at the Roswell Army Air Force Base for about a year and a half. He worked as an Air Force intelligence officer, meaning his duties likely involved handling sensitive information. So it probably wasn't that unusual when he was summoned that Sunday. Upon receiving Wilcox's call and inspecting the debris at the station, he and another intelligence officer named Agent Sheridan Cavett drove out to Foster Ranch. The next day at dawn, they claimed to collect every scrap of debris. And apparently, they worked alone, without any other civilians or military personnel on site. It's unclear why the Army felt intelligence officers were the right people for the job. They're not typically assigned to handle cleanup jobs. Unless the wreckage they were gathering posed a threat to national security. But that's not the impression you'd get from Cavett's official statement. All Cavett knew was that they were going to be retrieving some kind of material. He didn't know what it was or why it was special. But once Cavett arrived at his destination and examined the rubble around him, he didn't get what all the fuss was about. Cavett later stated that the debris appeared to be made of bamboo, metallic reflecting material, and a, quote, black box like a weather instrument. His explanation made the scrap sound a lot like an ordinary Earth-made craft. And the reference to a weather instrument seemed to suggest exactly what sort of vessel it was, a weather balloon. But there were some discrepancies between Cavett's testimony and the other eyewitness statements. For example, Cavett said the rubble was only strewn across roughly 20 square feet of pasture land, a far cry from the 200 yards Brazel cited. Cavett also claimed he fit the scraps into the Jeep he and Marcel arrived in, which again seems unlikely given how extensive the wreck sounded in Brazel's testimony. So it's possible Cavett lied about the retrieval mission, and he may have been coached on exactly what to say before he shared his story. Especially because Cavett never filed a formal report on the Roswell crash during his service. His only public statement on the wreckage was written in May 1994, 
nearly 50 years after the fact. That's certainly enough time to get a cover story straight. He tried to justify the lack of documentation, claiming it was because the mission was so uneventful. The debris wasn't interesting, and Cavett was embarrassed he'd wasted his time collecting it. But this directly contradicted what his partner, Major Marcel, had apparently reported. He stated that something very strange crashed on Foster Ranch. Like Brazel, he said there was a lot of material scattered over three quarters of a mile. There was so much, Marcel says he sent Cavett back to the base with a jeep full of materials, then loaded a second vehicle with even more. By the time he left Foster Ranch, he didn't have a single spare inch to fit another scrap in his car, and there was still an abundance of debris strewn across the field. During the drive back to the base, Marcel took a detour. He wanted to show the scraps to his wife and son. Marcel knew his 11-year-old son, Jesse Jr., would be fascinated with the discovery. And in the moment, he may not have thought he was under any obligation to keep it secret. To the best of his knowledge, his mission hadn't been classified. It wasn't until he returned to the base that he was ordered to secrecy. But Marcel seemingly got off easy. Allegedly, the officials took more extreme measures against other witnesses who talked, like Mac Brazel. Brazel's adult son, Bill, lived out of town. According to him, soon after the discovery of the wreckage, Bill dropped by Foster Ranch to help out. But when he pushed the front door open, he found the house empty, like it had been abandoned. Bill had no idea how long his dad had been missing. Remember, the Brazels didn't have phones or radios, no easy way of communicating with the outside world. He must have been unnerved because he stuck around for two or three more days until Mac finally came home one afternoon. The rancher didn't say much about where he'd been. He merely announced he'd been arrested and held in jail. We don't know if his imprisonment had anything to do with the RAAF or the wreckage, but the timing was too suspicious for this to be a coincidence. In fact, some of Brazel's friends and family claimed the rancher went missing for a week. Additionally, according to Bill, Mac's son, the base's law enforcement officer confessed Brazel spent time in RAAF housing after the mission to Foster Ranch. This doesn't mean he was a prisoner. But it doesn't mean he wasn't either. If the allegations that Mac was imprisoned are true, this would be a very big deal because it's illegal for the military to arrest citizens. If the goal was to keep Brazel quiet, the internment may have been a violation of Brazel's Fourth Amendment rights. Perhaps the base's leadership thought the wreckage was so important it was worth breaking the law to keep Brazel quiet. We'll probably never know what happened during the week or so Brazel went missing. He never spoke publicly about it. And according to one of Mac's neighbors, within a year of his alleged detention, the Brazel family suddenly came into a lot of money. It was enough to buy new property that should have been well outside their means. Maybe the authorities were trying to make up for an unlawful arrest, or perhaps they were trying to buy his silence. 
Brazel wasn't the only person who was allegedly censored after the RAAF got involved. Reportedly, military police visited Sheriff Wilcox at work and warned him never to tell anyone what he'd seen at Foster Ranch. Allegedly, they said if he squealed, they'd kill him and his family. Apparently, the threat scared Wilcox so badly, he never breathed another word about the crash again. We only know about it today because he supposedly told his wife, who repeated the story to her granddaughter, a few decades after the Roswell crash. Because of the intimidation tactics and Brazel's imprisonment, it seems very few people knew about Marcel's operation to collect debris from Foster Ranch. Supposedly, after Marcel returned to the RAAF, he flew some of the scraps to a base in Fort Worth, Texas for further study. And on the morning of July 8th, the base commanding officer, General Roger Ramey, held a press conference to announce his findings. Ramey was under strict orders from Washington, D.C. Allegedly, they'd wanted him to silence any stories about recovering debris from a UFO crash site. Which is why it was odd for him to set up a press conference shortly after. Unless it was all part of a complicated plan. Before the reporters arrived on the base, Marcel gathered the rubble into a box. He knew the brass had invited a photographer, and they'd want to dress the scraps to make it look good in pictures. So he carried it all into Ramey's office. When Marcel showed up, the general escorted him into another room. There, Ramey showed Marcel a map of the area and asked questions about where exactly the wreckage was found. When they returned later, the box had been seemingly emptied. At first, Marcel figured someone had laid it out to make it easier to photograph. But when he took a closer look, he saw that something was wrong. This wasn't the same rubble Marcel had packed earlier. It bore a superficial resemblance to the real wreckage, but the key details were wrong. This scrap was flimsy and shredded. While the Foster Ranch debris was indestructible, these twigs and strips of tinfoil were crumpled and creased. There was no sign whatsoever of the uncreasable metal. Before Marcel could protest, a photographer from the Fort Worth Star-Telegram entered the room. Ramey acted like the wreckage was the real debris from Foster Ranch. He even ordered Marcel to pose with it, as if he was supposed to endorse whatever lie the RAAF was pushing. And ever the loyal officer, Marcel did as he was told. Afterward, Marcel was ordered out of the room, then held in seclusion for 24 hours. It was as though he was treated like a security threat. And after his release, he was instructed not to talk about this mission with anyone. We don't know what became of the real rubble, but it seems it was buried out of state. And today, all of the material has conveniently gone missing. It sounds like General Ramey and other base personnel wanted to cover up the truth of what they'd found. But you wouldn't know it from the article that ran in the Roswell Daily Record on July 8th. In short, this article revealed official statements that were otherworldly in nature. 
base personnel confirmed for the Roswell Daily Record that they had, in fact, captured a flying saucer. They said they were passing it up the chain of command to learn more. The reporter even included statements from another local couple named the Wilmots. They said they saw what they thought was a strange craft go down the week before the RAAF gathered the wreckage. The article seemed to be announcing that aliens were real and they'd crashed in Roswell. If this all sounds confusing, we don't blame you. The Army's actions don't make any sense. They seemed to want to hide the evidence of the Roswell incident, but were surprisingly forthcoming about the debris's alleged alien origins. After appearing in the local Roswell paper, the story exploded nationwide. In Visalia, California, the Times Delta proclaimed the Army had found a flying disc. The accounts made the front page in Bakersfield, California. Maybe this was the point. Perhaps the Army wanted to look like they were being transparent. It may have been a tactic to earn the public's trust so they could turn around and execute a flawless cover-up afterward. Because on July 9th, less than 24 hours after the stories hit the papers, the Army backtracked. General Ramey claimed Brazel's debris had nothing to do with flying saucers or alien visitors. Instead, the authorities insisted the wreckage was an ordinary weather balloon, which we now know isn't exactly credible. According to many ufologists, this was the beginning of a decades-long misinformation campaign designed by the government to hide the existence of alien life. And it may still be ongoing today. Thanks for tuning in. In the next episode, we'll look at the government's history of cover-ups and why it's so hard to answer what really happened in Roswell. You can find more episodes of Unexplained Mysteries, Conspiracy Theories, and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. See you next time. Conspiracy Theories and Unexplained Mysteries are Spotify originals from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This special episode of Conspiracy Theories and Unexplained Mysteries was written by Angela Jorgensen, edited by Lori Gottlieb and Kate Gallagher, with fact-checking by Adriana Romero, and research by Bradley Klein. Conspiracy Theories and Unexplained Mysteries stars Molly Brandenburg, Richard Rossner, and Carter Roy. Hi, it's Carter, here to remind you that a very special evening with crime junkies Ashley Flowers and ParCast founder Max Cutler is just days away. It's an event celebrating the release of ParCast's first book, Cults, and you can be a part of it virtually on Spotify Live or in person. The evening will take place in Los Angeles on July 13th and feature discussions about the book, a live Q&A, and more. Plus, all ticket sales up to $125,000 will be matched by Max Cutler and donated to Season of Justice. 
a nonprofit founded by Ashley Flowers that provides financial resources to help solve cold cases and support families impacted by unsolved violent crimes. This has all the makings of being the true crime event of the year, so don't miss out. Register for your spot today at parcast.com slash cults. All attendees will receive a special signed copy of Parcast's new book, Cults. That's parcast.com slash cults to sign up today.